Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to glorify Christ. May all the glory and all the honor that is due be the focus of our time this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts truly be acceptable in your sight, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome. My name is Pastor Chris, Chris Ullman. For those that are new, and Roy, I'm so happy your fiance is here too. We've heard lots about you. Look forward to meeting you. Uh, so please open your Bibles. We are journeying through John, and we are in chapter 5. Thank you, Ricky, for reading God's word for us and to us. Before we get into John 5, I want to read to you from Hebrews 1, 2 to 3. And God's word says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through him he has also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Great preacher Charles Spurgeon in relation to this verse, said, what do I know about this wondrous truth? If I were to try to explain it and talk to you about the eternal filiation, which means sonship and fathership, I would only con conduct you where soon I'd be entirely out of my depth and very likely I would drown all that I could tell you in the floods of words. Deity is not to be explained, but it's to be adored. The sonship of Christ is to be accepted as a truth of revelation, to be apprehended by faith, though it cannot be comprehended by the understanding. Last week, we were journeying in John 5, 1 through 17 for those that were not here and to help us journey together. We're going to go back to go forward. And our goal today is not uh, comprehension necessarily, but belief so let's recap backwards. You remember what happened? We were at the pool. For those that are not in their heads, you journeyed with me to the pool, right? And we had the pool at Bethesda, excuse me. And we had a man, a nameless man. And Jesus pursued this nameless man at the pool who had been an invalid for? Great. Somebody paid attention. Thank you. 38 years. So 38 years at the pool. We don't know if he was born invalid. We don't know if he became lame Afterwards, we just know how long he was lame for. And of a multitude of these two uh, pools and five porticos, there Jesus pursues this man. And he comes to him and he asks him one single question. Remember what it was? Do you want to be healed or do you want to be well? What an interesting question, isn't it? And his response was odd. Well, I am an invalid, I am lame, and I need somebody to get me to the pool first. There was a missing one and a half verses, which I gave you a textual criticism highlight, which we'll dive into in a few more weeks in another part of the Bible. And what do I mean by that? We looked and said in the earliest manuscripts, 3B to 4 was not present, and therefore your Bibles either have a, a bracket around it or they miss those verses, rightly so. 
But what did those verses likely put in the appendix? What did the scribes probably put there? Context. Context that was, well, why would going into the pool first make a difference? And the prevailing belief was at this pool at this time that those that came in first, the first one would come in and be healed. But Jesus answers him and he says this, you are well. Pick up your mat and walk. Remember the day it occurred? Sabbath. Coincidental? I think not. Accidental? Never. Jesus tells him to pick up his pallet and walk, in which he does. Immediately he picks up his pallet and he walks. And what happens? The Jewish leaders see him picking up the pallet, see him walking, and they say, not wonderful, you're healed, but no, no, no. Who is it that did this to you on this day which broke one of the Sabbath laws, number 39 out of 39, to be exact. For they were far more concerned about the laws than they were about the Lord. They were far more concerned about keeping the law than they were about hearts and salvation. And so Jesus pursues him a second time, you remember? He finds him not this time by the pool, but this time in the temple. And he tells him, remember, they question him, who is it this, that, that made you well? And he says, I don't know. I'm paraphrasing, right? He says, I don't know. And Jesus finds him a second time. And now he knows who it is that made him well. Does it create belief? No. He goes and he tells on him which is not the purpose of the book of John. John 20, verse 31 says, there are many other signs recorded in this book, right? And these are meant to produce faith. But in this case, we have one of the saddest stories ever written in the Bible. A man physically healed, but spiritually distant. For what's worse than 38 years of being lame and eternity separated from God? That's the context. And so we pick up in verse 17 with a clear declaration, the great declaration. And it says, he, Jesus, answered them. Who is them? This is the Jewish leaders. And he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. See, at this point in time, God was referred to in a non-possessive pronoun. You would say, our God, our Father in the temple. You did not say, my God. But Jesus turns everything on its head. He tells them to pick it up on that day, and he tells them who he is. My God, my Father. Personal pronoun. He's working, and I myself am working. See, what the Jewish leaders missed is God never stopped working. Did he? For upholds all things at all times by the power of his word. See, Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit never stopped working. He rested. What did he rest from? He rested from the act of creation. But he never stopped being God. 
So your sovereign God is always a sovereign God. An omnipotent God is always omnipotent. An omniscient God is always an omniscient God. His attributes don't take a rest because of a Sabbath. And Jesus makes a claim that they know exactly what he just said. My God, my Father. No, no. My Father is working. And therefore, it's okay for me to work. Whoa. Wait, stop. What did you just say? 17, the gauntlet is down. The train is set. We're heading to the cross. And Jesus is ready to give five unbelievably clear statements to them, which if you think it's bad enough in verse 17, he's going to make sure they don't miss his points. And so typically when I preach, I have maybe two or three points. This time it's one point with five subpoints because it is only one point. And it is all about equality with God. And Jesus is making a clear declaration that he is, in fact, God. Verse 18, look to your Bibles. I want you to pick up, I'm going to give you five words to watch for in your Bibles. Here's what they are. For, therefore, so, since, and because. So I want you to pick up these words and I want you to track along with me. I'm going to read you all the verses we just read, but I only want you to pay attention to those words. For, therefore, so, because, and since. Here we go. Verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling his own God, his own father, making himself equal to God, with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in a like manner. Next verse, 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things and that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 22, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given judgment, all judgment to the son. So that all who honor the son, even as they honor the father, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is one of the most startling passages of all of scripture. Jesus gives not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, six grounds. So when you're doing hermeneutics, when you're studying Bible and you're trying to rightly present God's word and preach God's word and teach God's word, you look for key words. If you're fortunate, you get one four maybe two fours or a therefore. This has six fours and becauses and senses and so's or therefores that start each of the verses. This is a lot of grounds to cover. Do you catch my play on words? Not a lot of ground, a lot of grounds. Grounds are this. Technically speaking, a ground is a statement made up of a reason which follows or precedes why it is given. 
And so what Jesus is doing in verse 17 is putting the gauntlet down and then he is giving ground after ground after ground after ground after ground all the way through to verse 23. And then he tells them how faith may be found. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. You could, pre- you could literally preach on this for the next three months. I won't. Calm down. You're thinking I'm, I've put a pause on our preaching schedule, but I could. That's how strong this passage is. One of the famous preachers who went through this, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, remember in the book of Romans and spent almost eight and a half, nine years in the book of Romans. I know another preacher who hit this passage and actually took three hours to get through three verses. That's how rich this is. Six grounds in six verses is a ton of ground to cover in 45 minutes. John 5, 17 to 23 also contains two truly trulies. Do you notice them? What you may not notice is there's only 25 in the entire book of John. So for those that take notes, you might want to take a lot of notes in this particular passage. For Jesus is camping his statements with truly, truly at the beginning and at the end, and it's littered with grounds all in between. 25 truly, truly's are found in 879 verses in the book of John. Two of them are found in these seven. And what does truly, truly mean? Now, some of your Bibles might have amen or amen or truly, verily, or verily, verily, or some combination of that. What is Jesus doing when he does that? He is saying, pay close attention to what I am going to tell you. For what I am going to tell you is the truth. That's what it means. So when he starts it and he finishes it with truly, truly, he is bookending what I have just told you is the truth. John 5, 17 to 23 contains one of the greatest Christological discourses and declarations in all of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16. You know it, right? All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and for righteousness. All scripture is profitable, but certain passages in the Bible, such as this morning's, are uniquely clear, uniquely important, uniquely critical for our comprehension. But again, we can only scratch that surface. It's meant to engender not our intellectual ascension, but our heart's affection. It's meant to engender belief, not that we will ever fully comprehend what Jesus is going to say this morning through these verses. But the main idea, the main point is this. Just write in verse 24. Pretty simple. That's it. Jesus is telling them them, all of what's coming before that is going to be crystallized in verse 24. What does verse 24 say? The one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. How kind of Jesus to tell them what he's going to tell them. Five claims of equality to God. It's in your outline for those that take notes. Here we go. Number one, verse 18. Jesus says, I am equal to God in personhood or in the person. So look to verse 18 one more time. 
For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. Verse 18 is the death nail to Jesus, and he knows it. There's no verses back in these days. The, the verse before, he says what? My father. They picked it up, verse 18, and right away it says, for this reason, not for many reasons, for this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. What does that mean? They already wanted him dead, but now they had a reason that they could start to attach to it. Up until now, they were just disgruntled. They wanted him dead because he was disruptive. He was going around. He was healing people. He was teaching. He was talking about things, not about the 39 Sabbath laws, but about his father. And now he declares him as my father. Person, number one. Jesus, to refresh our memories from last week's sermon, is declaring that the Father does not stop working. He upholds the universe, Hebrews 1.3. Therefore, he is working on the Sabbath, so how can you punish me if God is my dad? You see what he's done? Immediately, he says, no, no, no. The reason I'm allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do this, you, just, you don't understand who you're talking to. If you understood who you were talking to, you'd be falling on your face and not challenging my authority. Breaking the Sabbath laws are a big deal. And perhaps many engender a murderous intent in the Jewish leaders' hearts. But calling oneself equal to God, listen to what D.A. Carson adds, fundamentally is a distinction between a holy, infinite God and the finite, fallen human beings. They got it. What he means by that statement is anybody that declares themselves as God is going to die. Because in their misunderstanding, misapplication, they go back all the way to the Shema. Do you remember what the Shema is in the, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament? In Deuteronomy, they taught kids from this age all the way up. The Lord our God is how many? One. One. Wait, what is happening? Now there's two, Right? Two and one don't equal. Something's going on and they don't know how to comprehend what's happening in front of them. Because don't forget, we know that there are three persons of the Godhead of the Trinity. What are they? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Notice I didn't lower my hands. They're all equal. Three distinct persons, but one being. And Jesus is giving them a lecture in the Trinity and they have totally missed the point. And in fact, that's what happens today in the Jews and their understanding of the Bible. They stop at the Old Testament, right? Waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the one to come. And they have not accounted Jesus Christ as God. Heartbreaking. Jesus claimed equality not just in person, but also in his works. Remember Isaiah 40, verse 18 and 25. Whom will you compare to God, Isaiah asks, or to whom will you compare to me or is equal to me, God asks. The Holy One as recorded. See, that's what's on their minds. How dare you call yourself God and call him your father? 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds his first truly, truly, and here he goes. Truly, truly, look to verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, now again, they've just told him, this is the reason that they wanted to kill him all the more. Jesus doesn't stop, and he adds, okay, truly, truly, I say to you, authority comes from who? From Jesus. Do you understand the importance of what just was just said there? Jesus doesn't say in Deuteronomy 6, 4, God's word says, like he does often when he has slanderous attacks coming to him and or trying to contort God's word. No, no, here he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He has just elevated his entire words to the Old Testament in this one quick statement. And if you notice, often the truly, truly's follow with the I say to you. What is Jesus saying? What I'm telling you is the truth. It's the gospel truth. What does he say to to him or to them? The son, capital S, can do nothing of himself unless he sees the father doing capital F. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Wow. It's impossible for the son to take an independent self-determined action that would set him over against his father. Perfect sonship involves perfect alignment to the father. And so what you see happening here is a claim of deity. Jesus asserts that whatever the father does, the son does. Now, you could be completely confused with what I just said there and say, wait, don't they have distinctions? Have you thought of that before? Sometimes they're all involved in an action. Can you think of one in the Bible? This is a good question. So if you had a Bible trivia, and the question is this, you leave here today, you go to lunch, and someone says, okay, can you give me an instance in the Bible where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all involved in an act? What would you answer? Okay, that is... Where you see, great answer, the baptism of Jesus is where you see the Father and the Son and the Spirit represented. Yes, that's true. But I want to transition it from where they all appear to how they all work. There's a difference in this question. And let me give you an answer. I believe you see it very clearly in our salvation. For the Bible talks that the Father does what? Chooses. The son who comes and who lives, who dies, who rose again, becomes the means for which we are able to be reconciled to a holy and just God. And the spirit does what? Indwells as a seal of our belief. Do you see how the father and the son and the spirit are all involved? We also see that in creation where the Father and the Son are spoken of. The Westminster Catechism, larger catechism, says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together are one being. The structure of being of God is one of unity. The three persons are distinguished by what the catechism calls personal properties. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father, and the Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Second Bible trivia question. You go to the same lunch and says, oh, wait, wait, 
the Son's begotten and the Spirit proceedeth. Does that mean there's a point in time where the Father and the Son don't both exist? Because typically when we think of the word begotten, we think of what? A point of time, a birth. Wrong. Wrong. Eternally begotten. Catch the word. Critically important you catch the words. The catechisms are codifying biblical truths. They're not the gospel. They're not the Bible. But what they're doing is looking through this. Learned men have spent tons of time to codify this into simple language so that we can hang on these truths and speak accurately of these truths. Eternally begotten means there was never a point in time where Jesus did not exist. Have you thought of that? And the spirit proceedeth from the father and the son, which means eternally the spirit proceedeth. So is there a clear delineation, a separation between the father and the son and the spirit this way? No, but there is a hierarchy. The father wills, the son does the father's will, and the spirit does what the father and the son direct. Does that make sense? Okay, because this is really important. We understand Trinitarian doctrine here. Because what's happening in this verse is he is telling them something that is rocking their world. Wait, you're calling yourself equal to the Father. R.C. Sproul adds, in Orthodox Christianity, we say that the Son is equal to the Father in power and in glory and in being. And this discussion rests heavily where I started with you back in September. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You see, John 1 doesn't wait. He's not like a pitcher in the bullpen warming up. He kind of comes in with a fastball. He's a closer right down the plate at 100 miles an hour. He doesn't wait. It's so much the point of the book of John that the Christological identification of Jesus as God that he starts in John 1.1 1, 1, and he just takes the train right to the cross and finishes the book of John and we'll get there one day, Lord willing. And when we get there, we're gonna have one of the most beautiful interactions of all of scripture of the grace and the patience and the mercy of Jesus Christ to one person, but ultimately to all of us. The father is preeminent Confirmed by the son's obedience eternally to the father. The son does not send the father, but the father sends the son. For the father loves the son and shows him all things, verse 20, that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. There's a ground. So that you'll be amazed. The second four or ground explains how the son can do whatever the father does. It is because the father loves the son and shows him all he does. The father loves the son. He's already been attested to in the book of John 3, verse 35. Now, you might catch it in English, or you might not catch it in English, but if you were to go back to John 3, 35 and compare the original underlying Greek verbs, they're different. You have two different Greek verbs for love. And many people take that and they go all the way to the end of John and they say, look, there's a verb here and a verb here. And remember the one, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Same thing happens in these two instances. 
But let me confirm to you that in both cases, the underlying Greek verbs that happen actually do not change the meaning. Some people have tried to say over the years that one is a, is a more deeper love and one is a more love like a friendship. No, that's not true. What happens is the verbs are different, but the meaning is the same. What are the Greek, or sorry, the greater works that the Father shows the Son? Look down to verse 21, point three. For, we pick up another four. What's it there for? We'll figure it out. For the Father, sorry, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The third four or ground occurs at the start of verse 21. The Old Testament writers presupposed that the raising of the dead belonged to who? God. Think to 2 Kings 5, 7. Am I God? Can I kill? And can I bring back to life? Question marks. Rhetorical questions. Only God can do that, right? Some rabbis believe that these three keys belonged to God's hands alone. What are the keys? The identity of God, the killing of man, and bringing back to life. The key to reign also, the key to the womb also. The key to reign is in Deuteronomy 28, verse 12. The key to the womb, Genesis 30, 22. And the key to the resurrection of the dead, Ezekiel 37, 13. See, what happens here, this is a highly technical argument that Jesus is saying. See, Jesus could have said, my God, my Father stopped. But what he's doing is he's walking them through his divine attributes. He is saying, no, 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 no. Look, I do this because the Father does this. What does that sound like, remember? So we have an equal personhood. We have an equal in works. But now he adds equal in omnipotence. This is now, he says, look, not just the Father, but Jesus. How many times, in the, here's a third question, how many times does Jesus bring back people from the dead? I'll let you answer that at lunch. <laughs> See, some things you answer right away, which is wonderful. This one was a little more complex, and I knew that question going in. That's your homework today. So do your homework, which will affect your heart work. How many times does Jesus bring back people from the dead? Jesus' omnipotent power is evidence of his sovereignty. Just as he chooses, remember, the one man from the vast crowd, and he makes him well, he has the ability to take a dead, decomposing body and say, come out of the tomb, come out. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We think of this as physical life. But Jesus is going to take it and say, no, no, no. It's so much more important than just what happens to your physical body. He's now moving, as we will see, from the argument of the lame man, the healing, the physical resurrection to the spiritual the Father gives life, Acts 17. Paul on Mars Hill is talking about God who gives life and breath to all. God in whom we live and move and have existence in our being. But remember in John 1, concerning the word of Christ, nothing was made that wasn't made 
by him because in him was life. This is the author of life standing in front of them and he says, look, God can bring that person back from the dead and so can I because I'm God. That's what he's doing. But he's going to move it from the physical and he's gonna transition. But how, remember I said last week, two weeks ago, what good is it if we have a young centurion boy that is healed to die yet again and be separated from God eternally? See, Jesus can instantly bring back, whether it's a girl, whether it's a boy, whether it's Lazarus, the dead to life. But that's not why he's there. The miracles are meant to produce faith so that it's eternal life. And we're going to pick up this word at the end. He's going to change it from life to eternal life. That's where the train is going. That's where Jesus is heading. The Father gives life. Here is a Galilean carpenter standing there saying he is the one who created the entire universe. And he gives life to whomever he wishes. Nothing exists that he didn't wish to exist. Nothing came into existence by random process. Nothing. He's equal to God in power. He's equal to God to make something live, make something exist that did not previously exist. What's the main difference? Humanity's been trying to create life forever. How does God create life? By speaking it into existence. He doesn't need anything to create something because he is not like us. He is God. And so it is staggering. It's a staggering claim. I don't know if you catch the importance of what's happening here. I pray you do. Jesus said at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. The religious leaders search for eternal life and yet they refuse to trust the only source for eternal life. John 1, 11, he came to his own and those who came to his own did not receive him. Religious leaders are standing in front of him, the author of physical life, spiritual life, and their desire is to snuff out his very life. Can you imagine? The great crowds, I said last week or two weeks ago, it blurs together sometimes, that Jesus did lots of miracles, he healed lots of people, and most of them never came to faith. Have you ever considered that? The same people that he was feeding bread to, the same people he was healing were the same people saying, crucify him. So our Lord makes three amazing claims. He's equal to God in person. He's equal to God in works. He's equal to God in omnipotence. He's not done. Verse 22, sovereign judgment. For not even the father judges anyone, but he's given all the judgment to the son. Now we transition from the physical to the eternal. Do you see how the transition is happening now? Look carefully. Verse begins with the fourth four or grounding statement and provides further reasoning for the great claim which he just made prior in verse 21. Whereas the father and the son are seen in parallel fashion, meaning they do things together, now Jesus actually says, there's a distinction which the author of John is making through the divine inspiration of the Spirit. It's a distinction in the roles. 
The Father has given the Son. The Father, think of it this way. The Father and the Son both can give life, right? Hopefully heads nod. Yes, good. Okay. Spiritual life, let's do the backwards, is Father choosing, Son the means, Spirit becomes the seal, and that's the application. So that's where all the Trinity are involved. But in this case, what he says in verse 22 is he says, the Father has given the Son the unique ability for the judgment. This is important we catch. The Father and Son both enjoy the prerogative of giving life, but the role of judgment the Father has delegated to his Son, Jesus Christ, exclusively. God prior had recognized in Genesis 18.25, which was read this morning. Thank you, Matt. It says that God is the judge over all the earth. But now what Jesus says is the son has the right to do judgment over the sin in mankind. For those that do not turn to him in faith, which we're going to see. 319 in John, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the men love their darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Remember, we had a wonderful Christmas service when we had this representation of darkness and light, which were symbolized in the candle, but that was symbolic of what's happening by the light piercing through the darkness. And just like when we come to faith, our darkened hearts that were hardened become hearts of flesh. Jesus also understands what is in mankind. We've learned many times in the gospel, remember? John 5, 42 to 43, a little further ahead says, but I know you that you have not the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. Remember he stands in front of people and he knows instantly how long he's been lame for. Many instances so far, he has omniscience. God has the authority to give a person life, but not only this, God the Son has the power to heal a person in his healing of the lame man by the pool. But the Son of God has the power to raise the dead to life. Perhaps the Jewish leaders could dismiss the healing. Uh, maybe, Maybe other people have been healed, but now Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not just the physical thing. You're going to be facing me when you die. Whoa. This has changed. If you think they were upset before, I mean, this is now point four, underline, exclamation mark. How do we get them to this cross as fast as we can? Jesus has the authority to give a person life, but he has authority to give a person spiritual life. And he becomes the mean therein. There's no way of a declaration of being able to raise people from the dead that can do anything but a divine declaration. If Jesus is God, then he only not only requires acknowledgement, but he requires worship. Honor is due to the Son, for he is indeed God. Point five under there. One E, in his honor. God says in Isaiah 48, 11, I will not give my glory to another. But God gives not only his glory to the son, but we are to give our glory to the son. 
you see what's happening? It's a shared glory. See, God is, he's always existed. So when it says in Isaiah 48, 11, I will not give my glory to another, who existed then? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We glorify, we often don't think of that. We think of giving glory to God. But that means that we honor and give glory to the Father. We honor and give glory to the Son. And we honor and give glory to the Spirit. The Spirit, sometimes I feel, doesn't get the proper due that's due. Jesus is aligning his authority in a th- to the Father and effectively saying to the Jewish leaders and to them and then to us today through his written word, you cannot honor God if you do not honor me. And if you do not submit to the authority of Jesus, the man standing in front of them, then you're in absolute rebellion against the God that you're declaring is your God. John Calvin wrote these words 450 years ago. Listen carefully. Muslims and Jews give God, they worship beautiful, magnificent titles. However, they should remember that whenever God's name is separated from Christ, it's nothing more than empty imagination. Sproul adds, we cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son, and the Father has appointed a day when he will judge the world by the one whom he has appointed to be the judge, who is Christ, Acts 17, 31. Friends, many people in the Western culture today believe they can believe in anything and they'll be okay. All roads lead to Rome. All gods lead to God. Wrong, not true. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. These are wrong assertions that lead to eternal damnation and separation from God, Father, Son, and the Spirit. Anyone who does not submit to Jesus Christ will be judged by Jesus Christ. Anyone who dishonors the Son dishonors the Father. And what does submission look like? This is where Jesus, so again, let's look backwards. He's put the gauntlet down. They picked it up. They realized exactly, and what has he done? He is equal to God in personhood, works, omnipotence. What's for? This is the interactive part. Thank you. And what's five? Honor. Submission to God is in verse 24. If they understood those five truth claims of equality, the only right response is verse 24 for them and for you. If you don't understand what just was said, you will stand in judgment whether you believe it or not. But... If you hear God's word and believe, verse 24 becomes the sweetest verse of all of this passage. Truly, truly, second, truly, truly. Remember I said it's camped, two truly, trulys. Jesus is saying all of that argument that has preceded, all of it is culminating now in this one truth claim that's to follow. I say to you, Jesus, who's the authority here? Jesus. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. In English, you might miss what just happened. There are so many present tense verbs in this, you have no idea. This is all present tense. Jesus is saying, listen, 
if you do this, not you will come into life eternally, but you already have instantly. And the criticalness of this is this. He is saying, look at the verbs that's being used. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Does not, what? Come into judgment. See, these words that are happening here are in a present tense. The son honors the father, but do you honor God? See, the present tense, there's two participles. I won't get into the boring stuff for you, but there's hearing and there's believing. Those are both present tense participles. There's also life. It's a present tense of the verb. There's also judgment. That's a present tense of the verb. Jesus is telling them, listen, if you do this, you have eternal life. You're speaking to the author of life and all you have to do is believe. But if you don't, go backwards a couple verses, judgment is coming and I am the one that's executing it through the will of the Father and you will be accountable whether or not you believe verse 24. So verse 24 is either the best news or the worst news you could possibly hear. Depends how you interpret it and believe it. But in verse 24, Jesus clearly says, the one who what? Hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not you will have eternal life. Brothers, sisters, I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to over the years that one of the biggest questions that is faced across their lives is this. Am I saved? Outside, one of the resources that I put out there is on eternal security and salvation. Please read it. We'll get more. If, you, if, you, if you're wrestling with that question, come and talk to us. Salvation is not something that you earn. It's something that is given. Salvation, there's nothing you can do. I don't care which row you're in. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. There's nothing you're ever going to do that's going to earn verse 24. It says, no, if you hear and believe, you have eternal life, which cannot be snuffed out, cannot be taken for you. Real life in Christ is permanent. That's a truth claim. But what's also true is if you have it, then you should bear fruit. So what's happening here is equal to God, person, works, omnipotent, sovereign judgment and honor. And then he adds, what? If you hear and believe present tense reality, you are saved. But there's a continuation, which is also picked up in this verb. There's a continuation of the verb, which means we have to continue to live like it. So do you believe Jesus Christ is equal to God? Some of you may have been attending this church for 20 years. And you nod your heads and you smile and you come out and say, good job, pastor, nice sermon. And I'm thankful for all those encouragements. Praise the Lord. But if all we've done is tickle your ears and not affect your hearts, 
where you have come to eternal faith in Christ, then this message is for you. Believe. Hear and believe. Present tense, the verbs, is a present tense reality in our lives. For there's a continuation effect for believers. The second way to honor God, first way is to what? Hear and believe. Second way is to live out your faith and grow in holiness in our lives. God's word says in 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy. Our holiness does not earn us salvation, but it is evidence of our salvation. Friends, a holy church means we're a unified church. It means we're a family. It means we overlook wrongs. We are quick to forgive. We apply God's word to our lives. Churches that veer from this, that have divisions and fractures and these things, what they're doing is they're more concerned in here than they are in here. For our Savior is the one that gave us the biggest sacrifice we could ever ask for. And so our lives are to be in the shadow of this cross and look like our Savior. We need to mortify sin. We need to kill sin in this church and in our hearts. Chiefly among them, pride. Sin always has a destructive effect, but often the effect isn't immediate. Now, some of you know in our house, we've had a water issue recently. Now, rains come and they come and they come and eventually what happens? Last week and a half ago, we're going to Scripture for Living and uh uh-oh, we got water and it comes in. Now, the question is, where? We can see the evidence but we have to find the source. Is it coming from here? Is it coming from here? Is it coming from there? How do we know? You have to test. So what? What does the water test in our life look like? See, we can see the evidences of sin, can we not? We can see it in maybe how we are angry or harsh or divisive or destructive or gossiping or insert whatever sin you want. So we need to root it out. We need to kill it. See, the problem with water coming in a home isn't the remediation of the floor. That's just the evidence. You can open up the wall behind it and say, yeah, yeah, there's no mold there. Maybe, hopefully, prayerfully, (laughs) let's pray for that. But unless you fix the problem, it's just going to keep happening. So God's word says we have to mortify sin. The remedy is not a Band-Aid. Biblically, our sin and sin patterns are not immediately evident remediation work like it is on a, on a water leak. Just removing the surface level is not enough. Richard Sibbs, the heavenly doctor, and I have an amazing book called The Refreshment for the Soul by Richard Sibbs. And wouldn't you love that title to be a heavenly doctor to be your title when you're gone? He says this, tears and mourning for sin when it comes for inward grief is a temper well befitting any man. It's not unmanly or a base thing when one has to deal with God. He must forget his state and take the best way to meet with God. This is evidenced by many instances 
for David through a man of war, yet he, was, he had to deal with God. And what did he do? He watered his couch with tears. Psalm 6, 6. Hezekiah, though a great king, he humbled himself. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Our blessed Savior himself did it with strong cries and tears. Hebrews 5, 7. And when did that happen? When he had to deal with God. When we have to deal with God, our, all of our abasement, which means humiliation, is the mere minimum, Richard Sibb says. Cultivation, friends, of humility puts pride to death. Let me repeat that. The cultivation of humility puts pride to death. Is our day filled with the same old person doing the same old things and expecting a different result? Perhaps periodically we pick up the Bible, we listen to a sermon, we put a podcast on and we think, okay, that's good, check. Now, our faith must be lived out, must it not? Second Peter 1, 5 through 9, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with a virtue of knowledge and with knowledge and self-control and self-control is steadfastness, steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they're increasing and they keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Listen to this quote. Unless you see yourself standing there shrieking with the crowd full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent lamb of God, you really don't understand the nature and the depth of your sin and the necessity of the cross. What kills a church? Sin kills a church. What kills unity? Sin kills unity. We are to be filled with brotherly love and affection for one another, other-focused, thinking more of others than ourselves, humbly moving ourself down and putting Christ up, thinking less of ourselves and more of our Savior every day. Kill sin. A cross-centered life is made up of Christ-centered days. A cross-centered life is made up of Christ-centered days. C.G. Mahaney said, what's perplexing is not that you and I encounter suffering in this life, but what's perplexing is that he suffered in our place. Why did the innocent one have to suffer for our sins? Because we're sinful. Let me read to you a quote as we finish this morning from Sibs that I pray affects your heart like it did in mine getting ready to preach to you this morning. It's on January 24th from his devotional. Well, it wasn't a devotional, but they've made it into one. It says, a warning concerning our outward actions alone. For most have thought wrongly about devotion and humiliation. They think that devotion is only outward actions and it's a little hearing or reading or praying. Whereas in truth, these outward acts do not make up the body of devotion, which without the soul, namely the inward religious affection, it's no better than a dead 
Carrion. Our outward expression must come from apprehension of goodness, mercy, justice of God before the very angels veil their faces. It is not outward devotion that we will serve the turn. If I go and I pray and I kneel and express all outward carriage, in the meantime, neglecting to stir up the soul to worship God, I will be judged at the last day. Jesus said that, did he not? I will be judged at the last day. Therefore, let all holy actions come from with from within first and then the outward man. Let us work upon our hearts a consideration of goodness, justice, mercy, and mercy of God. And then let there be an expression in the body. Let's pray. Father, wow, your word is so impactful to our hearts. If we are only but to listen, to hear and obey it. We have just reveled and learned of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his equality with you as Father. God, those words must not just be words, but they must be transformational to our hearts, rightly understood there to create a right orientation to our days, rightly understood there to create a right interpretation of all situations that we come through all sufferings that we face and rightly applied. We want to be more like your word instructs us. So God, guide us, direct our steps, unify our church in Christ. And may that start in our first, our right worship of hearing and obeying the identity of Christ.